right. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be together, and it's good to be back preaching through Romans. And so go ahead, if you've got a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. To give you an idea of where we are going in our preaching schedule, uh, today and the next couple of weeks, we will preach from Romans 11. We, we will then enter into the Advent season and take a step out of Romans in order to preach some sermons that will help us prepare to celebrate Christmas well, to celebrate it in a God-honoring, Christ-exalting way. And then in January, we will pick back up in Romans 12 and start to get to a lot of the practical exhortations that God gives us in Romans which is what we naturally, you know, typically want right away from God's Word, isn't it? Give us, give us the practical application. But the practical exhortations that we are given from God's Word, they can be distorted and misguided if we haven't first allowed God to lay the foundational truth about who He is and who we are. And so this past year, going through Romans, what God has been revealing to us is he's been laying this foundational truth to us about who he is and who we are, but we are now about ready to turn the corner and switch gears and say, okay, now in light of what is true about God and us, now here is what we must do. Here is now how we must live. But Romans 11 could be the chapter, as we're looking forward to Romans 12 through 16, Romans 11 could be the chapter that you wrongly think you can space out on and just check out on. Because depending on what Bible translation you have, depending on what the editors have titled the top of chapter 11, um, it could cause you to think that this maybe isn't applicable to you. Uh, For example, the ESV uh, editors uh, at, at the start of chapter 11 have written, The Remnant of Israel. And you could think to yourself, well, I'm not an Israelite, Uh, I'm not Jewish, seems like this chapter doesn't directly apply to me. Um, maybe, maybe that's what you're thinking, thinking I'll just check out till Romans 12, uh, 12. And if that's you, listen, let me plead with you for a moment to not miss out on the good life-giving truth that God has given us here in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 is going to be very helpful, helpful for us because first, it's going to show us how God has always and will always be faithful to his people. God has always and will always be faithful to his people. And we can learn a lot about the faithfulness of God by seeing how he has been faithful to his people throughout every season and throughout every century of history, in both times of abundance and in times of famine, in both times of blessing and in times of discipline. God has always and will always be faithful to his people. Romans chapter 11 is also going to be helpful for us because we're going to see that while many of us, while many of us in here might not be physical descendants of Abraham, next week we're going to see that through faith in Christ, we have been grafted into this chosen people of God. And what's true for them is now true for us in Christ as we have been adopted into the same spiritual family. And finally, the reason that chapter 11 will be so helpful for us is this chapter is going to help us see the big picture of God's storyline of redemptive history. 
Sometimes it's helpful to take a step back and to zoom back and get the big picture of how God is working. And this chapter should help both Jews and Gentiles to not look down on one another or to become more distinct or hostile towards one another, but they should see that ultimately they are being brought together through faith in Christ. And that God's not done with the Jews and God's not done with the Gentiles. So let's not look past Romans 11 too quickly. This morning we're going to look at the first six verses and we're going to see two things. Number one, that God is faithful to his people in all seasons, even when they can't see it. It's the first thing we'll see. God is faithful to his people in all seasons, even when they can't see it. And secondly, we'll see that God will always choose and keep a people for himself by grace through faith. God will always choose and keep a people for himself by grace through faith. Let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You have the words of eternal life. Help us now to hear and obey what you have to say to us. We ask this through Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Well, look with me now at Romans 11, verse 1. Romans 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul asks a question here. Has God rejected his people. Remember, he started addressing this in a way in chapter 9, because the question that could arise among these Roman Christians upon hearing all the glorious promises of Romans chapter 8, which by the way, if you've forgotten the glorious promises of Romans chapter 8, go back and read that again. But after hearing upon these glorious promises for Christians in Romans chapter 8, one could say, hey, that's amazing that God has made these great promises to Christians, but didn't he make some great promises to Israel? And I'm looking at this first century Roman church, and there's a lot of Gentiles in here, and only some Jews, but the majority of the Jewish people in the first century have rejected Christ. So does that mean that God has rejected his people? Is that what that means? It's an understandable question that could have been asked in Paul's day, and even in ours as well. And it's a big question. And it has implications for us. Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted to keep his word and his people? Is God faithful to his people? And so Paul asks a question here in order to make a point. Has God rejected his people? And he answers once again with a very strong and emphatic, by no means. By no means. He then goes on to use himself and Elijah as examples of how God has been faithful to his people in all seasons, even when they can't see it. First, think back and remember how Paul has answered this dilemma from the word of, uh, uh, in chapter 9 where he's asking this question, has the word of God failed? 
And in Romans 9, verse 6, which you can flick back or we'll have up on the screen, Romans 9, verse 6, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And so he first taught us a couple chapters ago, he first taught us that not every ethnic Israelite is a true Israelite. That circumcision was not to just be a physical thing, but that their hearts needed to be circumcised as well. Which I don't know if you, what all you guys picked up on when we read Romans 1 through 11 together last week out loud, uh, but I was struck once again with just how many times Paul wrote the word circumcision in his letter to the Romans. I don't know. I, I felt for some of the, the, the sweet people that were reading the scripture, I was like, wow, you read it to yourself and you don't realize it, but spoken out loud, it's said a lot. And I wanted to get up and explain to our guests and ones that were here, like what was going on here. But what he's been trying to teach us in Romans is that it's a, it has to be a matter of the heart. And that not every ethnic Israelite is a true Israelite. And so that started to clarify some things for us. But then but we still have this question of, has God rejected his people? And Paul goes on to say, no, take, take me for example. Take Paul for an example. Paul is an Israelite. He's a physical descendant of Abraham. He was one of the thousands of other Jewish people in the first century who received Jesus as the Messiah. And the early church was certainly made up of many Jewish people who had put their faith in Christ and had received the kingdom by receiving the true king. But then what happened? Then the, then the Gentiles started flooding in to the church and getting saved. All the while, the majority of the Jews still kept rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in Paul's time, and even continuing into today, it would not be unusual for a Jewish Christian to think, wow, God, uh, this is not going the way I thought it was going to go. Which I think we can all relate to that. I mean, has anyone ever been there before? This is not going the way I thought it would go. Everyone who is not God has been there at some point. But just because things have not gone the way you thought they would go, that does not mean that God has rejected you or that God has been unfaithful to you or to his word. And I'll say that again so that we, we really start to receive that and hear that. Just because things have not gone the way you thought they would go, that does not mean that God has rejected you or that God has been unfaithful to you and his word. Because what Paul lays out through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 11 is not the way many first century Jews thought it was going to go. But God is faithful. And he's got an even greater plan and purpose that we can't always initially see. And that our minds are too small to comprehend. But what Paul teaches here in Romans 11 is very much in line with what Jesus taught his disciples in Luke 13. In Luke 13, after teaching about what the kingdom of God is like, he, Jesus taught that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, that it starts small and then it grows into a tree. And he taught that the kingdom is like leaven that a woman took and hid in flour until it was all leaven. Just, just following that in Luke 13, verse 23, it says, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? 
And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now this verse has been understood by some that only a few people throughout all of human history are going to be saved. But remember that Jesus, in this context, he just taught what the kingdom of God is like, that it starts small and it grows large. And I believe the best interpretation of this text is to understand that Jesus is speaking of the first century Jews, that only some of them in Jerusalem are going to be born again, believe, and enter the kingdom of God. But then look what he says just a few verses down in Luke 13, verse 29. And people will then come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some who are first will be last. Now, you see, he's not just referring to the meal line at the church pitch-in, which is usually how that verse gets applied. He's referring to the Gentiles that the first century Jews looked down upon. He's saying, hey, I know some of you think you are the best religious people you know. You're in first place. You're striving to establish your own righteousness. But some of those Gentiles who you think are in last place are actually going to be some of the first ones to obtain righteousness, the righteousness of God. And so Paul here in Romans 11, he's, I believe he's in, in line with what Jesus is teaching in Luke 13 about how this is all going to play out. Initially, only some of the Jews are going to enter through the narrow way. But then the Gentiles are going to flood into the kingdom from the north, south, east, and west. And you'll think, wow, that's not the way I thought this was going to play out with the coming of the Messiah. But take heart. God's not done with the Jews yet. And we'll see later in Romans 11 that after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, that there will also be a great revival of the Jews coming to faith in Christ as well. And what Paul is saying here is, hey, God has not rejected his people. Even though it seems like only a few Jews are coming to Christ and lots of Gentiles are coming, even though this is not going the way we thought, God is faithful. And God is faithful to his people in all seasons, even if they can't see it. And so think for a moment about whatever season you are in or whatever situation you might find yourself in right now. I'm sure there has to be an aspect of your life that you could think, hey, this is not going the way I thought it was going to go. Know this, that God is faithful in all seasons. He is true to his word and to his people always. In seasons of famine and in seasons of abundance, in seasons of blessing and in seasons of discipline, in seasons of mass revivals and in seasons of deconstruction and apostasy. God is faithful to his people. Do you believe this? It's sometimes difficult to believe this. And what makes it even more difficult to believe this is that there are some things that blind us from being able to see God's faithfulness. 
And listen, church, we have to be able to see and recognize God's faithfulness in our lives and in our world. Because while this week we're going to learn that God chose his people by grace through faith, next week we're going to see that God keeps his people by grace through faith. And in order for our faith to survive and be strengthened, we have to be able to see the faithfulness of God. You must understand this. Our faith is a response to his faithfulness. And so if you're not seeing his faithfulness, your faith is in trouble. You understand, this is serious. Your faith is going to be struggling and weak if you are not able to see right now the faithfulness of God in your life and in our world. This is of the utmost importance, and I'm going to tell you this morning, there are things right now blinding you to seeing God's faithfulness in your life and in your world. And so we need to, we need to find this remedy of, of curing this blindness, of clearing up our vision, being able to see God's faithfulness, because it is by seeing God's faithfulness that our faith is going to spring up and be strengthened and be vibrant Some of you might not even know or realize that you are being right now blinded from seeing God's faithfulness in your life and in the world. And so in this next example that Paul uses of Elijah, this will hopefully take the blinders off because there is a remedy to this blindness to God's faithfulness. There's a remedy. I came with good news this morning. Look at Romans 11, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Now hold your spots here in Romans 11 and turn back in your Bibles to 1 Kings 19. We need to see where Paul is, is bringing this story of Elijah in from 1 Kings 19. So it's back in your Old Testament. You have 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and we'll be in 1 Kings 19. And while you're turning there, I'll catch you up on what is going on here with Elijah. Uh, He's just witnessed a wonderful work of God in defeating the prophets of Baal. Uh, The wicked king Ahab had called all the people of Israel to Mount Carmel, and Elijah was pretty much like, hey, choose today who you're going to serve. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. Let's prepare two sacrifices on an altar. You call out to Baal. I'll call out to the Lord, and we'll just see who answers, okay? Okay. And the prophets of Baal go first, and they're cutting themselves, and they're crying out to Baal, and Elijah's having some fun with it, like, maybe he's sleeping, maybe he's away, speak louder, you know? And then Elijah goes, and Elijah pours water on the whole sacrifice. He makes a trench of water all around it. He calls out to the Lord, and then boom, fire. The fire of the Lord comes down, consumes not only the burnt offering and the wood, but also the stones and the dust and licks up all the water. And the people see this and they fall on their faces and they say, the Lord is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They grab all the prophets of Baal and they kill them. And then they all lived happily ever after. (laughs) 
Nope. Well, that's what you would think. But Ahab's wife Jezebel worshipped Baal, and upon hearing what had happened, sends a messenger to Elijah that she is going to see to it that he is killed in the next 24 hours. And we pick it up now in chapter 19, verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked. And behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the, the mount of God. Horeb's also known as Mount Sinai. That'll be important here in a moment. So Elijah has just been a part of a great work of God. You would think that after all the prophets of Baal have been defeated and killed, you would think that revival would be breaking out. But very quickly things change for him. He gets this message from Jezebel, and now he's afraid. And he runs for his life out into the wilderness, and he's fatigued, and he's weary, and he's now to the point that he wants the Lord to take him. And I want you to see here and make a note as to what can blind us from seeing the faithfulness of God. And this is not a comprehensive list by any means, but a few things that can blind us to God's faithfulness that we need to consider this morning. And those things are fear, fatigue, and pride. Fear, fatigue, and pride can blind us to the faithfulness of God in our lives and in our world. And some of you this morning, fear, fatigue, or pride is blinding you from seeing the faithfulness of God. Look, now look at Elijah. He gets a message from Jezebel, even though he just got a pretty strong message from the Lord at Mount Carmel. I mean, God just sent a pretty strong message that he's with him and that, that you know, the prophets of Baal are going to be destroyed and God is faithful and he's here and he heard Elijah's prayer. But he gets a message immediately following from Jezebel and now he's afraid. And he runs. And God didn't tell him to run, but he runs. And he's fatigued and he's tired and he's exhausted. And look how graciously God deals with him here. God didn't come to him first with a rebuke. No, the angel of the Lord comes. And he comes with cake. <laughs> I mean, isn't God the best? He says, arise and eat. Sometimes 
we are blinded from seeing how God is faithfully working simply because of weariness and fatigue. We are tired and we are hungry. And God knows these things and he cares for us and he knows that sometimes what we need is a good nap and a good meal. (laughs) Note the graciousness of God here. He could have come with a rebuke. Instead, he comes with cake. He says, take and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And what we see is this food then sustains him until he gets to Mount Sinai. And we pick it up now in verse, look at verse 9 of 1 Kings 19, verse 9. There he came to a cave. This word cave could also be translated a cleft in the rock. He comes to a cleft in the rock at Sinai, for those that are paying attention, and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, anytime God asks questions of humans, he's not trying to get new information. This isn't a, Elijah, what are you doing here? This is a, what are you doing here, Elijah? He's trying to expose to them their heart, trying to guide us in truth when he asks these questions. In verse 10, we see Elijah's response. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, why is Elijah really here? He's here because he's afraid, fatigued, and prideful. And he's so blind to the faithfulness of God that he thinks he's all alone. That he's the only true follower of Yahweh. And it's his religious zeal that has gotten him to where he is. And no one else follows God like he follows God. Everyone else has abandoned you, God, but not me. And now they want to kill me. And so it's all over. You see, in our fear and in our fatigue and in our pride, not only do we become blind to how God is working in our life, but we become blind to how God is also faithfully working in other people's lives as well. And we wrongly think that we're alone. The only ones struggling. The only ones hurting. We're the only ones going through something and that no one else really knows what we're going through because we're the only ones who are really trying to follow God faithfully. Now flip back to Romans 11. And we're going to tie this together. Coming back to the question of has God abandoned his people? Has God abandoned his people? Well, in all honesty, sometimes it feels like he has. Sometimes we feel like Elijah. God, I thought I was following you. I took the step of faith you wanted me to take, but things have just gone from bad to worse, and now I've got Jezebel trying to kill me. It sometimes feels like he has abandoned us. 
And when my fear or when my weariness or when my pride blinds me to how he is faithfully working for my good and the good of his people, when I'm blind to that, I desperately need a remedy to my blindness. And here we see the remedy and how God answers Elijah. Look at Romans 11, verse 4. But what is God's reply to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Oh, you see, church, even in the darkest hour, when it seems like all hope is lost, and it feels like as if God has abandoned his people and all people have abandoned God, we see God's reply to Elijah is this, and God says, I have kept for myself a people, and I have chosen them by grace. Grace is the remedy to the pride and the fear and the fatigue that blinds us from seeing the faithfulness of God. Grace is the oxygen our faith needs to survive. You see, when we forget grace, or when we turn it into something that we think we have earned or deserved, in which case by doing so we have made grace into something that is no longer grace, when we forget grace or turn it into not grace, then in our pride we are prone to say, well, I deserve better than this. And God owes me for my service to him. I mean, you see what I did at Mount Carmel? God, you see that mission trip I went on? You see all those Sunday school classes and Awana meetings I sat through? God, you saw that time that everyone else was looking at something they knew they shouldn't be looking at, and I turned my eyes the other way, and now I've got to go through hardship, trial, and suffering? No, God, I deserve better than this. You owe me. You see, when we forget grace, or turn it into something that we have earned or deserved, then in our fear, we are prone to think, I am all alone. When we forget grace, or turn it into something that we have earned, then in our fatigue, we are prone to feel, I don't have what it takes to carry on, and therefore, I give up. Some of you, even in your battle with sin, sometimes that relentless temptation and struggle and fight with sin, sometimes you just get so weary and fatigued by it, you get to the point when you forget about grace, you just get to the point where you say, God, I don't have the strength to keep fighting. I just give up. And so I don't know if that's resonating with any of you this morning. These are things I've felt over the last few months at different times. One of these wrong thoughts of, I deserve better than this. 
or I am all alone, or I don't have what it takes to carry on. Maybe some of you would say all of the above, if there's an all of the above option. And if that's the case, the remedy for you is to receive and enjoy grace that is actually grace. Grace, by its very definition, should every day give body blows to our pride because grace is favor from God that we do not deserve. Grace is undeserved favor. And what that means is, is that you don't deserve it. And I'm not trying to talk, I'm saying that slowly and again for my own self, but we need to hear that. We are blind to the faithfulness of God when in our pride we begin to think that God owes us for our service to him. And it's what every good church kid and church-going person could be prone to if God's grace is not enjoyed and appreciated and received every day. The good news of God's grace in the gospel, it must humble us and unblind our eyes because in the gospel, we do see what we deserve. What do we learn thus far in Romans? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve, church. That's what we are entitled to. Every good thing you have in your life has been a gracious gift from God. Now, I'm not saying that everything that has been done to you through the sin of others is right and okay. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that the grace of God, when it is received and enjoyed every day as it truly is, undeserved favor, I'm telling you, it squashes any sense of entitlement or pride that we can start to have. We know and have this hope that God has always and will always keep for himself a people who have been chosen not because of their works for God, but because of Christ's work for them. That's what it means to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But why can I say that? Isn't Paul just talking about the 7,000 that had been kept by God in the days of Elijah? Or verse 5, when he says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Isn't he just talking about God keeping for himself a people in Paul's day? Well, what we will see next week is that we have been grafted into this people of God who have been chosen and kept by grace through faith. What we will also see is that Christ is the ultimate chosen one of God, and we have been united to him. Jesus Christ is the true and better Israelite who kept all the commands of God and fulfilled them all, and we are now in him. We also see in Acts 15, which we'll have up on the screen, at the 
Jerusalem council. This council was held because some were teaching that the Gentiles, unless they were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, that they couldn't be saved. And in Acts 15, verse 11, Peter speaks and he says, But we believe that we, speaking of Jewish believers, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Speaking of Gentile believers. Jewish believers will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will as the Gentiles. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Oh, you see, church, this is how our God has worked throughout the storyline of redemptive history. Whether in the days of Elijah or in the days of Paul or in the days of the Gentiles flooding into the kingdom, God has always and will always have a people for himself who are chosen by grace through faith and who are kept by grace through faith. So that we would be able to say, along with the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 15.10, when he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Church, if we are a part of a people who have been chosen and kept by grace through faith, if by the grace of God we are what we are, then may his grace towards us not be in vain. Some of you need to be asked the question this morning, in whatever situation or season you find yourself in, you need to ask yourself, or a friend needs to ask you this, or the Spirit maybe need to, needs to prompt you with this, but you need to be asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Can you zoom out big picture and see how God is faithfully and graciously working in your life? Are you dwelling more on what you and those around you are doing or are you setting your mind on what God is doing? Can you see the grace and faithfulness of God who chose you and who has kept you in the cleft of the rock of Christ? Can you see the rock of Christ upon that cross that you are hidden in who's taking the fury of God and the wind and in the shaking earthquake and in the fire and all that your sin deserved so that now you can commune with God and you can be brought into a right relationship with him? And he's done this all to the praise of his glorious grace. 
If you are tired of being blinded to the faithfulness of God in your life and you want to be freed from the constant frustration that comes from thinking you deserve better because of your past works, listen, the remedy is to receive and enjoy his grace today. He's working everything for your good and the best is yet to come. He will always be faithful to his word and to his people. When we receive God's grace as true grace, our fears are calmed. To know that while much remains unseen, all remains seen to God. And he's raising up 7,000 strong, all the while we wrongly think we are all alone. He is working in ways we can't see. God's grace calls out the lie that we are all alone. We're not alone. He's given us himself. Even when it feels like we're alone, we know he's gifted us with the Holy Spirit who is present with us and Jesus Christ who is interceding for us and the body of Christ both locally and universally and throughout history who's come alongside of us. We are not alone. When we receive God's grace as true grace, it, it also energizes our fatigue and weariness. Because no longer must we strive for our favor and acceptance with God. But now we live and we work and we love one another as ones who are already accepted and chosen by God through faith in Jesus. The feeling of, I don't have what it takes to carry on, is not corrected by receiving the grace of God. It is completed. It is saying, yes, I don't have what it takes to carry on, but he does. And he will be faithful to give you the power to carry on as you are resting and abiding in him. Church, God is faithful to his people in all seasons, and he is working for their good even when they can't see it. God will always Keep a people for himself who are chosen and kept by grace through faith. Therefore, therefore, may we trust God in all seasons. In all seasons. And may we receive and enjoy his grace every day that we would have eyes to see that God is faithful. God is working. We are not alone, and he will never or abandon or reject his people.